Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Cars and Cigars, Giving Back to the Community by Adrian Michael. From Denverite, I'll be reading How Does a Beer Scavenger Hunt Along Colfax Avenue Sound by Rebecca Tauber. And Parents Scramble, Kids Celebrate as Extreme Heat Disrupts DPS's First Week of Classes by Matt Bloom. From Westward, I'll be reading, Environmental Groups Sue Air Quality Commission Over per Permitting Rules by Katie Cheshire, and Codebreaker Alan Turing's Belongings Returned to England from Conifer by Patricia Calhoun. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Cars and Cigars, Giving Back to the Community by Adrian Michael. The Cigar Lords held its first car show recently to increase engagement and foster meaningful connections with their community. The Aurora-based Cigar Lords launched their 501c3 nonprofit organization in 2016 when a group of five men bonded over their shared enjoyment of cigars. It wasn't long after that that they decided to be more than a social group and work together to make a difference in the community. We're pushing ourselves to get bigger because the more we can give, the better things are, said Cigar Lords President C.J. Johnson. We have a lot of guys who want to give back because somebody gave to them. They understand the feeling of how satisfying it can be to make someone's day, no matter how big or small. That's one of the best feelings ever. People see the Cigar Lords name, but they don't know the guys behind the brand. So our idea is to go ahead and give back and meet as many people as we can because it helps us grow. Johnson reached out to Smolder Lounge, which is also based in Aurora, to join forces with them in their effort to give back. Heather M. Lynn, who owns Smolder Lounge, did not hesitate to accept. We partnered with the Cigar Lords since we have a big voice, Lynn said. We also own the Gentleman's Groom Room Barbershop next to Smolder Lounge, so we can reach more people, help get the word out, and help get the community involved. The more people involved, the more people can help, Lynn said. We really want to get involved in the community and get the community back together, because COVID took everyone and put them in a little turtle shell, and before COVID, it seemed like everyone really wanted to help everybody. And now it just seems like everybody is very much in their little niche, and I want to be helping them get out of that. Smolder Lounge is an inclusive cigar lounge that has been in business for 11 years. We want everyone, no matter what they do for a living, their color or age, to feel comfortable and feel more like family than it is a clique. For the 2023 holiday season, the Cigar Lords and Smolder Lounge will host a turkey giveaway in November and a toy drive in December. According to Johnson, the Cigar Lords plan to create events where they're doing more than giveaways, like mentoring, as well as advocating for social justice and mental health care. 
Our goal is to be able to help everyone. We believe in teach one, reach one, Johnson said. The next two articles are from Denverite. How does a beer scavenger hunt along Colfax Avenue sound? By Rebecca Tauber. If Colfax Avenue was a beer, what would it taste like? Cerebral Brewing interpreted the famous infamous Rhodes flavor in its new beer, Neon Light, a light lager that pays tribute to the street's many historic neon signs and dive bar culture. The beer's label plays tribute to the Aurora Fox Art Center's neon sign, next to Cerebral's location in Aurora Arts District. The taproom's other location is along Colfax in Congress Park. With two locations on Colfax, it's kind of become our home, so to speak, and it's such an iconic street, said Allie McKinley, Cerebral's marketing manager. We kind of wanted to make neon light with a tribute to our home street and recognize the many neon lights along Colfax. Customers can get a card at one of Cerebral's two locations and fill it with stamps by ordering the beer at a number of bars and music venues along Colfax. People who finish the quest get prizes ranging from free beers to gift cards up to $100 and Colfax-themed merchandise. McKinley said Colfax Quest is part of a bigger push to collaborate with local businesses along Colfax. Cerebral partnered with 303 Boards, a skateboard shop along Colfax, to create a limited edition label for Neon Light. Next week, the brewery is coming out with a new label and merchandise in partnership with Coloradical, another retail shop on Colfax. Neon Light is also being sold at Colfax's historic Bluebird Theater. We really wanted to involve all of our neighbors on Colfax, McKinley said. McKinley said one customer finished the quest in just three days. The route includes 12 stops along Colfax, plus Cerebral's two locations. The brewery is planning two Colfax bar crawls before the quest ends on September 17th. Parents scramble, kids celebrate as extreme heat disrupts DPS's first week of classes by Matt Bloom. On her second day of third grade, Emma Hawk packed a few pencils in a Hello Kitty backpack along with a water bottle full of ice and a fan. Hawk ended up not needing them for long. Her school, Polaris Elementary in Denver's Five Points neighborhood, cut classes short on Tuesday due to extreme heat and a lack of air conditioning. Polaris was one of more than a dozen schools in the district that sent students home early after highs hovered close to 100 degrees. At least 17 schools also planned an early release on Wednesday, as leaders expected temperatures in classrooms without A.C. to jump above 80 degrees. We didn't do a lot of learning, Hawk said about her shortened first day as her parents picked her up from school on Tuesday. We just tried to meet each other more. Reed Hawk, her dad, adjusted his work schedule to come pick his daughter up around lunchtime. The school announced the heat day release via email the night before, so he had a little heads up to adjust his day around it, he said. Obviously, she's the priority, so we kind of make do, he said. I think the school is trying their best to keep everyone safe. Heat has become a perennial issue for the district's older buildings. At least 43 schools don't have fully air-conditioned facilities. When temperatures rise in classrooms, it can disrupt learning. Anything higher than 79 degrees can also pose health risks, 
along with significantly negative impacts on test performance and knowledge retention, according to the U.S. Department of Education. Last year, many schools without AC units lost about a week of classroom time due to early release heat days, said Scott Pribble, DPS's communications director. While we understand it's an inconvenience for many families, they understand the importance of why we're doing the work that we're doing, Pribble said. Many of the district's buildings were constructed before AC was considered a given for new buildings. School years were also shorter and didn't start as early in the summer as they do now, Pribble said. The district has tried to upgrade facilities with AC units in recent years. Voters passed a bond measure in 2020 to fund renovations at 24 schools. So far, it has upgraded at least 11. The rest will be done by 2024. Since COVID, we've run into supply chain issues, which has delayed some AC projects, Pribble said. It's invasive work that can't be done when students are in the building, so that limits us. At least 30 more schools in the district need AC, but funding has not yet been secured for them, he added. Schools have tried other cooling methods, such as placing floor fans in classes and opening windows. Still, heat days have emerged as the best solution to ensure safety at DPS. Parents and teacher unions generally support the idea, since it prioritizes students' and staff's well-being. On Tuesday, parents lined up in cars outside of Polaris Elementary School to pick up students around lunchtime. Tope Dimmer leaned against the school's chain-link fence looking for her first-grade daughter. She took a half-day at work to pick up her kids early. It can be difficult to accommodate, Dimmer said. This is our first heat day ever. Dimmer's two sons, also students at Polaris, hung around as they waited for their sibling to come outside. Third grader Aid sketched in a coloring book while he waited. Are we going to watch a movie? Aid asked his mom. I think we're going to stay inside, yes, his mom said. Tolu, a fifth grader, announced that his teacher had assigned him extra homework to make up for the missed class time. He wants us to stay intact, Tolu said. Even if we miss a day, we don't want to move backwards. Once that's out of the way, it's playtime. The following articles are from Westward. Environmental Groups Sue Air Quality Commission Over Permitting Rules by Katie Cheshire. The Colorado Air Quality Control Commission acted contrary to the state's landmark Environmental Justice Act when it created a new rule for air permits in disproportionately impacted communities earlier this year, say some environmental groups. Represented by the environmental firm Earth Justice, community organizations Green Latinos, 350 Colorado, and Earthworks filed a lawsuit in state court on Monday, August 21st, challenging the new rule and asking that it be sent back for revisions. The rule centers around extra protections in Title IV Clean Air Act permits for disproportionately impacted communities where the proportion of households that are low-income that identify as minority or that are housing cost-burdened is greater than 40%, according to state officials. It includes enhanced modeling and modern monitoring requirements for new or modified air pollution sources and requires that all permit applicants submit an environmental justice summary with their application and install any control technology that is techno technologically and financially feasible for the pollution source to install. 
The state's new rule doesn't require enough source-specific monitoring, charges the lawsuit, and it limits enhanced modeling to a small set of polluters and pollutants, while dividing disproportionately impacted communities, which have historically borne the brunt of pollution, into two groups. Residents are sick and tired of the pollution and want the state to do something about it. Enough is enough, says Lucy Molina, a frontline community organizer for 350 Colorado who has long pushed to hold the Suncor oil refinery in Commerce City accountable. It's frustrating. The system is working as designed, and it's not designed for the people. The Environmental Justice Act, passed in 2021, aims to correct historical inequities and protect communities from pollution. It directed the AQCC to adopt enhanced modeling and monitoring requirements in disproportionately impacted communities, such as the neighborhoods around Suncor. These modeling and source-specific monitoring requirements are necessary to meet the goal of reducing pollution in those communities, in part because neither the state nor the DI communities can successfully reduce pollution without reliable data on the source and quantity of those pollutants argues the Earth Justice lawsuit. When we look at the rulemaking that occurred, we don't see that there was sufficient air monitoring, says Patricia Garcia Nelson, fossil fuel just transition advocate for Green Latinos. What we would have liked to have seen is some sort of strong protection for communities. Under the AQCC's May ruling, very few sites would be required to do source-specific monitoring, which is necessary to combat pollution, according to the lawsuit. Instead, most entities applying for a permit would have to pay a community monitoring fee ranging from $50 to $750 per relevant pollutant to contribute to monitoring in the general area. Ian Coghill, of the, one of the Earth Justice attorneys in charge of the suit, says that the statute clearly intends for monitoring to be source-specific rather than just occurring in these communities. For me, it really is personal because I have been working on getting air monitoring at Bella Romero Academy in Greeley, and so I know what it's like to be a parent that's concerned about your child's safety, Garcia Nelson says. She got involved with environmental justice while opposing a fracking project planned right next to the school where her son was a student five years ago. Since then, she's worked to get air pollution monitors for the school. She calls the new fee system proposed by the AQCC laughable. Garcia Nelson says she partnered with 350 Colorado to get a $500,000 grant from the EPA to monitor the air near Belo Romero and another school in Greeley. That amount will allow for 18 months of monitoring. This is why she's suspicious about whether fees, hovering around a maximum of $5,000 per permit, will actually provide enough funding to implement air monitoring at all. It's a form of keeping people complacent, Molina says. Look, oh look, we're doing something, but we're really not. These entities have been allowed by our own government to self-regulate. The baby became a teenager. He's got an attitude now, and we're trying to calm him down, and it's out of control. As the suit alleges, the AQCC ruling doesn't explain how the community monitoring program will work, its anticipated cost, the number of sources involved, or the rationale for the fee schedule. There's no justification for why the fee table was appropriate or even what it's going to accomplish, 
Coghill points out. Environmental groups also take issue with the fact that the AQCC ruling didn't apply the stricter permit requirements to any hazardous air pollutants other than benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene, which are specifically named in the law. Although the Environmental Justice Act allows the Commission to do so, it didn't, despite the groups suggesting several that would be relevant. The Earth Justice Coalition also estimates that in any case, out of the nearly 5,000 air pollution permits the state issues per year, fewer than 100 would be subject to enhanced modeling or source-specific monitoring for those four pollutants. It's simply just part of our job to say no and to push our agency leaders and our industry leaders to do the best that they can, Garcia Nelson says. I simply don't believe that they can't do better. Lastly, the lawsuit argues that the AQCC shouldn't have used its environmental mapping tool, EnviroScreen, to divide communities into cumulatively impacted communities and socioeconomically vulnerable communities. Permit applicants would only have to do modeling or monitoring on-site in cumulatively impacted communities. The rest would just pay the community monitoring fee to which the lawsuit also objects. The problem is that EnviroScreen uses a criteria of 35 different factors to determine the level at which a community is impacted by pollution, and only five of them relate to air pollution. According to the Earth Justice suit, only 139 of the 310 areas that meet the definition of a disproportionately impacted community and score high on EnviroScreen for air toxics emissions would be classified as cumulatively impacted communities under the AQCC rule. It's actually cutting a large number of communities that could potentially benefit the most from more monitoring or modeling out, Coghill notes. Beyond that, it just isn't right to separate disproportionately impacted communities into classes, the plaintiffs argue. We definitely feel that when holding the industry accountable for monitoring to protect public health, it needs to be the same across the board, Garcia Nelson says. Everybody deserves to be protected. In a joint statement sent to Westward, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment said the AQCC said they are both aware of the lawsuit and are reviewing it. The department and the commission remain committed to protecting air quality for all Coloradans, no matter where they live, the statement says. The rule amendments the commission adopted in May of 2023 demonstrate this commitment by taking full advantage of the authority granted by the Colorado Environmental Justice Act in incorporating feedback from community members and other stakeholders that strengthened the rule. The CDPHE is committed to doing more to help impacted communities when it comes to air pollution, the, the statement adds. The department has always prioritized the health and well-being of every Coloradan and knows there's still more work to do. The goal of the Earth Justice Coalition is to see all pollution sources required to conduct source-specific modeling and a decrease in air pollution in communities as those sources are held accountable. The state needs to be a better example, Molina concludes. Other states are looking to the work we've done, and we can do better. Codebreaker Alan Turing's Belongings Returned to England from Conifer by Patricia Calhoun it was a long time coming. Historical items belonging to Alan Turing, the legendary British mathematician and codebreaker, 
were returned to the Sherborne School in Dorset, England during a special ceremony this week. The artifacts, including Turing's PhD diploma from Princeton University, an Order of the British Empire medal, a personal note from King George VI of England, a number of school reports and various photos, had been taken from the school archives nearly 40 years ago by a woman named Julia Shingholmes, who claimed to be a relative. In early 2018, federal agents seized them during a raid on the conifer home of Julia Turing, who'd changed her name from Shingholmes because she felt she was the spiritual daughter of Alan Turing. Most people learned about Alan Turing through The Imitation Game, a 2014 biopic starring Benedict Cumberbatch. They learned about Julia Turing when the U.S. Attorney's Office filed a complaint accusing her of stealing his belongings from his alma mater. Alan Turing had attended the school from 1926 to 1931, and the items were originally placed there by his family in the 60s. According to a complaint filed in U.S. District Court in the District of Colorado, U.S. authorities learned of the existence of the Turing artifacts when they were offered for display at the University of Colorado in Boulder in 2018. After an investigation by Homeland Security Investigations revealed that they'd been removed illegally from the Sherborne School, the U.S. Attorney's Office took action and the feds organized the conifer raid. The matter was ultimately resolved in a settlement. Together with Homeland Security Investigations, our office ensured that historical artifacts belonging to Alan Turing are now back in the place where they belong, said U.S. Attorney Cole Finnegan in an announcement of the deal. We celebrate the accomplishments of Alan Turing and are thrilled that the historical significance of these artifacts will continue to be appreciated by scholars and generations to come. Sir Alan Turing was named a national hero for the crucial role he played in cracking coded messages during World War II, enabling the Allies to defeat the Axis powers, said H HSI Special Agent in charge Ryan L. Spradling. I'm very proud that HSI Denver investigators and our partners at the U.S. Attorney's Office were able to recover his effects after being missing for nearly 40 years. Colorado Springs gets schooled on inappropriate sexual and violent content in the Bible by Teague Bolin. Academy School District 20 in Colorado Springs removed three books from its libraries after receiving a letter of complaint from a conservative activist group called Advocates for D20 Kids earlier this summer. Ellen Hopkins's Identical, Rachel Vale's Lucky, and Sapphire's Push, the novel upon which the Academy Award-winning film Precious was based. That move inspired the Freedom From Religion Foundation to suggest one more book that should be removed based on the same criteria of inappropriate sexual and violent content, the Bible. A parent of a student from District 20 reached out to us, explained FFRF attorney and spokesperson Chris Line. She was concerned not only that these books had been removed, but how and how quickly. We shared her concern that this outside group, Advocates for D20 Kids, had not only had their voices heard, but heard immediately. Both we and that parent reached out to the district to suggest that if they were going to ban these books, then the Bible should be banned as well. Not because it's a religious book, but if you have a problem with graphic sexual content and violence, then based on the sheer amount of that in the Bible, 
You should ban that too. In the FFRF's June 21st letter to the district, Lyon goes into great detail as to how, exactly how and where the Bible gets into such issues, referencing passages such as Ezekiel 23, 20-21, in which a prostitute lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, and whose omission was like that of horses, and who longed for the lewdness of your youth when her bosom was caressed and young breasts fondled. Or Genesis 19, which recounts another sordid and preposterous story that defames incest victims as it recounts the exploits of two daughters who, having just witnessed a genocide and the murder of their mother by a pyromaniacal god, supposedly got their father drunk and seduced him in order to bear his children. Then there's Leviticus, which describes sperm, intercourse, menstruation, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, and whores. And Numbers depicts a holy man impaling a woman through her belly and describes in loving detail how to steal and rape virgins as war booty. As anyone who's studied the Bible can tell you, there's a lot more where that came from. The FFRF offered Academy School District 20 a choice. You can either stand by your criteria for banning but books and ditch the Bible, too, or admit your actions were in error and reinstate the three books. Which is really what we want, Lyon says. That's important to understand. We don't want books to be banned. We're advocates of education and freedom of thought. Book banning is bad. There's no true freedom of thought, conscious or even religion, unless government and our public schools are free from religion and its control over thought. Within a month, the district admitted that the way it had gone about removing those books was in error and reinstated the three novels. After careful consideration, its response to FFRF notes, the district assures that the removal of library materials will be based on established policies and procedures. That's not exactly a guarantee that the retention of these books, and many like them, often written by underrepresented groups in terms of both race and sexual orientation, is a done deal. So we're not completely out of the woods, Lyon says. These books could still be challenged through the district, but we are able to stop this. It's an important victory for now, but there's so much more to be done. Derek Wilburn, a candidate for the D20 school board this November and a member of Advocates for D20 Kids, went on record in a Colorado Gazette guest editorial in May supporting the initial complaint regarding the books, comparing them to learning about anal sex and blowjobs. Neither Wilborn nor his campaign returned emails inviting comment on the book ban, and no one else from Advocates for D20 Kids could be reached. The group's website shows up as suspended, offering only a generic landing page that promises to be back soon. District officials did not respond to requests for comment, but the FFRF has plenty to say. We trust students to explore these subjects for themselves, Lyon says, to read these books, to be challenged in certain ways, to learn and grow. We obviously all agree that actual pornography should not be in a school library. But what these groups are doing is saying that any sexual content in a book is pornography. We have to protect books in schools and ensure that there's no discrimination occurring. We're keeping our eye out for viewpoint discrimination all over the country. 
We're alarmed by it and how common it's become. We're doing our best to help where we can. Honey Boo Boo Handbook, a totally honest guide to life at Regis University for the Reality Star by Katie Cheshire. Denver is adding another celebrity resident to its roster this fall. Alana Thompson, famously known as the child star Honey Boo Boo, will be attending Regis University. In July, Thompson told Entertainment Tonight about her plans to head to the Northwest Denver campus with classes officially starting this week. Thompson is entering Regis's Loretto Heights School of Nursing, which regularly ranks as the top nursing program in Colorado. Her goal is to become a neonatal nurse. After gaining fame as a pageant star on the TLC show Toddlers and Tiaras, Thompson went on to get her own spin-off show, Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. There aren't too many modern-day Regis alumni who can really be considered famous. Bill Murray is one of its best-known alums, though he never completed his studies at the school. Still, he was awarded an honorary degree in 2007. Former Major League Baseball player Stephen Brault got his degree from Regis, as did several Colorado politicians, including Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera and U.S. Representative Idira Caraveo. If Thompson were to turn her time at the school into a reality show, she'd be showing the world a hidden gem that many Denverites themselves are not familiar with. I have been on TV my whole life, and I kind of just basically accepted that whether I want to be a nurse or I want to be an accountant, whatever I want to go be, that I will always be in the spotlight, Thompson told E.T. It doesn't matter what I do. I will always be known as, oh my God, Honey Boo Boo's working on my baby when he was in the NICU. With Thompson looking ahead to the new school year, some Regis grads, myself included, decided to welcome her in the best way possible, with a brutally honest survival guide. The Essentials Ghosts, Bathrooms, and Parking Thompson says she doesn't plan to live on campus for security reasons, but she will still spend plenty of time there, which means she may have to deal with some spooky activity on its premises. Main Hall, the iconic central building at the north end of the school's grassy quad, was built in 1887 and is a constant source of ghost stories and legendary haunts. In 2016, the school asked people to share their supernatural experiences at the campus on Facebook. As a former security officer, 1987 to 2009, I have several incidents that will make your skin curl, commented Ralph Ursini. He included a story of unexplained noises on the top floor of Main Hall. Personally, my freshman year dorm room in DeSmet Hall was most definitely haunted, and the bathroom in the residence village, where I lived the following year, was visited by the ghost of a fluffy white cat. Another campus icon everyone needs to track down is the famous Van Ekfeti crucifix, known to students as Black Jesus. The statue can be found on the west side of the chapel in the meditation garden. It's a great place to go for some peace and quiet, or a great view. But on rowdier nights, students also love to go there and take a shot of alcohol with the statue. That's not the only activity on campus that Jesus might not approve of. Perhaps this advice is too far, but I stand by it. Don't buy a parking pass, my friend Thomas Jones declares.
Jones says a better strategy is to park your car on campus, get ticketed, and then don't pay the tickets. His theory, never buy a parking pass or register your vehicle in any way with the university and you'll be fine the whole time. No way for them to track down whose car it is. Another situation that can sometimes be improved by anonymity is using the bathrooms on campus. A survey of several people I know who went to Regis concluded that the best bathrooms are the ones in Main Hall because they're private. They are weirdly large, too, my former roommate Carolyn Conrad notes. But also beware. I accidentally walked in on someone because they forgot to lock it, and it was weird because he was so far away. The bathrooms in Clark one of the newer buildings on campus, are also nice, and the stalls on the first floor of the Dayton Memorial Library can come in clutch during a study session. And not that weird one in Peter Claver Hall, where the entrance is around the tightest corner and you always awkwardly bump into people, Conrad warns. Rules were meant to be broken. While my friends and I spent plenty of time studying or participating in various extracurricular activities, we also spent plenty of time not doing those things. Over the years, we collected a few hacks for having some fun without getting in trouble for it, and ways to stay out of trouble that you might not have considered. The school, and particularly the dorms, always seem to be strict on checking bags during the holidays, so be extra cautious with sneaking in illicit materials around those times if you decide to visit friends in the dorms. A major tip be sure to wrap bottles in some sort of fabric so they don't clink together and give you away. If you're going to smoke marijuana, the smartest choice is to walk off campus to do it. Since Regis receives federal funding, cannabis use isn't allowed on campus despite its being legal in Colorado. If you really want to light up, though, try heading behind West Hall toward Main Hall, where you'll find, some, find a table and some benches. Campus safety aren't cops, Jones notes, so they don't have the same ability to investigate. His advice for, for you if you get caught doing anything bad, just deny it. I knew a dude who had a whole sheet of acid confiscated by campus safety in his dorm room, and he told them the tabs were collectible artwork and not acid, Jones recalls. He just never admitted it was acid, and he totally got off. As far as academic success goes, my friend Masha Rostov who is a doctor now, says it's not a good idea to skip class. Your school is too small, she explains. They will send you a personalized email to check on you. The campus is physically compact enough that you will inevitably run into the professor for whichever class you skipped in the dining hall or on the quad. Plus, there are other perks to succeeding academically. If you make the dean's list, there's a bougie reception and they will give you free alcohol so be sure to study up. When I asked friends for their advice for Honey Boo Boo, three of them offered tips about printing stuff on campus. Find a printer that screws up its connection to the system and prints for free, Conrad advises, and if you can't find that, print in Claver Hall. The printers there are less likely to smell your fear, alum Vivian Gatt explains, but get there early because nursing students. Since Thompson will be one of those nursing students, it's even a better tip for her. Nursing labs can often take place in Claver Hall. In a late-night emergency, the basement of Carroll Hall is usually unlocked, so you can print from the computer labs there. 
Finally, unfortunately, there are no comfortable places to nap in the library, Conrad reports. Activities around the Mile High City. One of the biggest perks of going to Regis is the chance to live in Denver. It'll be quite a change from McIntyre, Georgia, where Thompson graduated from high school, but should be fun for the reality TV star. And with any big city, it's always great to say yes when people invite you to do things. Thompson should take a field trip to Boulder and check out the lore around John Benet Ramsey. This spring, the house where her body was found went back on the market for $7 million. A hot spot for famous people in Denver is Rock Mount Ranch Ware. The store at 1626 Wazee Street has outfitted a wide range of stars, from Bruce Springsteen to Macklemore to Miley Cyrus over the years. Perhaps Thompson could be the next person to join its celebrity gallery. Another great thing to do, go to a sporting event at Ball Arena. The atmosphere draws in even those who don't care about basketball or hockey, and there's no better way to get swept up in pride for your new city. While you can check out Westward's restaurant recommendations to explore the breadth of Denver's culinary scene, there are plenty of spots within walking distance of Regis that are great, like McCoy's, a once 24-hour diner, and Takabi, which serves American Indian cuisine. You can also get to Tai Bao, a Vietnamese restaurant, and El Taco Velos without ever crossing the street from campus. Once you turn 21, head to Rocky Top Tavern on Sundays when they have $6 smothered burritos. You'll also inevitably end up eating plenty of Brooklyn's finest pizza, where garlic knots are key. Brooklyn's pizza with the jalapeno cream cheese Enough said, Gat recommends. If you don't want to spend money on food, there's pretty much always an event on campus giving it out for free, so be sure to stay on the lookout for those. Plus, the Regis Cupboard, located on the bottom floor of the library, provides non-perishable groceries for students. Lastly, sign up for a Denver Public Library card. Not only can you read to your heart's content, but it also offers passes to museums and cultural attractions in the city and movies to stream for free on Canopy. But what about some real advice? Truly, Regis has some of the best professors you'll ever meet, so don't take them for granted. Befriend them and visit them during office hours. Get in contact with an advisor within the nursing program early. As Ristoff notes, your original advisor might not know exactly what that program requires. I'd tell her that the best part of going to a small university is that you get to know your professors really well and that she should take advantage of that, Congresswoman Caraveo shares when asked what her advice would be for Thompson. I often had lunch with my professors and worked in the biology department. You don't always get to form those relationships at large universities. Though the school is small, it still offers major perks. Definitely take advantage of the free tutoring and therapy, encourages Esme Campus, a friend of mine who completed the very same nursing program Thompson wants to enter. Go to classes because you get info for the exams that are sometimes not in the books. Another pal suggests putting chocolate cookies in your pockets during finals week. But the most important advice we can give you, introduce yourself to Dave Law. Law is the Director of Student Life and Engagement at Regis and is honestly just the best person. In 2022, the school named an award after Law to recognize faculty and staff whose service goes above expectations. 
Attempts to reach Thompson were unsuccessful. Regis said it didn't have anyone who could comment for the story. Best wishes, Honey Boo Boo. We hope your time in the Mile High City is as sweet as your name. HQ Underground turns into HQ Underwater after Broadway water main fiasco by Teague Bolin. Scott Happel was dining out with friends on the evening of August 15th. He had a show, show at HQ, his popular live music spot at 60 South Broadway at 9 p.m. He'd been there earlier in the day to make sure everything was ready. But then came the bad news. The water main under the street out front had burst. We think it happened around 5.30 p.m. or so, says Happel. I got a call from my landlord saying there was water coming through the wall of the place next door. I remember thinking, oh, that's not good. We cashed out, didn't even eat dinner, and got to HQ just before 7 p.m. Everything was flooded, recalled Happel, right up to the top step. And that would be the top step of HQ Underground. What we think happened was that the valve on the water main failed, Happel says, shooting water directly toward HQ, pushing tons of dirt and water up against our basement wall. The wall finally buckled, filling up HQ's lower level like a bathtub. The entire 3,200 square foot basement, with 10 to 12 foot ceilings no less, was completely submerged and the ground floor was beginning to flood when Denver water finally got the water shut off. Eventually, the emergency crew found the source of the spill. They ripped open a hole in Broadway, says Happel, at which point we could see there was no dirt left under the road between the water main and HQ. Makes sense. It was all in our basement. The entire block was without service until early on August 16th. Happel was there until about 1 a.m. that morning. We had two crews come out that night to work to get the water out of there, he says, but it was just beyond their means to do it. It was beyond the scope that they'd ever seen. By the next day, the water level had gone to a couple of feet of standing water. But that's a problem too, Happel notes, or at least it's something we have to have checked out. It's not good for a foundation to have to absorb that much water. We won't know the sum total of the damage for some time. So HQ, which was Westward's choice for best new club in 2022, is now closed and will be for three to six weeks, Apple estimates, until the damage on the first floor can be assessed and repaired. Shows that had been booked there have been moved to other venues, the Oriental and Herman's Hideaway to name a couple, or at least temporarily scuttled. But restoring the basement will take much longer. HQ Underground had hosted drag and burlesque shows several times a week, and Happel estimates that the area may not reopen until next year. In the meantime, Happel and partner Peter Orr have started a fundraiser on HoldMyTicket.com, where Denver music lovers can donate to help the venue get back on its feet. While these are not tickets to a specific future event, they say, what you are buying is a ticket to help keep HQ alive so that years worth of future events can still happen. Even though HQ has insurance, Colorado's water exception removes liability if water from outside the building is the cause of the damage, Apple worries. We're going to be talking with our insurance company, of course, but honestly, at this point, we expect insurance to do close to nothing, if not exactly nothing. He's not counting on the city of Denver, 
which has been doing various infrastructure projects along Broadway for months, stepping up either. While Happel says his landlord has been the point person for communicating with Denver Water, he hasn't heard from anyone at the city of Denver about the situation. Westward has reached out to the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure for comment. Another part of this story is that the city has hired a construction company, Hammond Infrastructure, to do a bunch of work up and down Broadway, Happel says. They started work in front of HQ two days before this happened. I'm no scientist, but I suspect they've got to be somewhat responsible for this water main breaking when and how it did. I just don't believe it's a coincidence. Brad Davis from Hammond Infrastructure disagrees. The company's work was unrelated to the incident that took place with the water main, he says, and refuses further comment. Matt McGessey is a co-owner of the nearby Mutiny Information Cafe at 2 South Broadway and says the surrounding businesses support HQ, its owners and employees. Not to mention the fans, he says. The damage has been unbelievable. It's so sad. There aren't many venues that have been around as long as that spot has, under various names. It was the cherry pit for a while, and then turned into Three Kings, which was partly owned by Mutiny's Jim Norris. But Migiesi is also concerned about Mutiny, as well as his neighbors. I'm scared, quite frankly, says Migiesi. The city is about to work on my section of the street next. We are the main water source for that whole building. That includes the dance studio behind us, the bar next door, the barber shop down the way. We draw a lot of water, and I'm worried that there could be damage to the water lines near us, and we'll see the problems just move down the road to us. Meanwhile, Apple is worried about trickle-down economics. Business expenses don't just stop because we're closed, he said. The loss of income is bad and getting worse every day that goes by. It's a nightmare. I just want to wake up. To help HQ survive, see the holdmyticket.com website. For more information on shows and schedules, see the HQ webpage. Shine Music Festival returns for its third year at RealWorks by Aubrey Cox. For Sean Satterfeld, founder and director of the Shine Music Festival, the road has not been easy. The festival, which is designed to cater to the needs of disabled attendees, was supposed to launch in 2020, but Satterfield was forced to call an audible when the pandemic reared its ugly head. And the day before its opening in 2021, Denver experienced the worst air quality out of any city in the world for several hours. Satterfield remembers that Governor Jared Polis was floating the idea of canceling all events on public property as the organizers held their breath. Eventually, the wildfire smoke subsided and 3,800 people braved 100-degree weather to take part in the first-of-its-kind festival. 30% of festival-goers had visible or known disabilities, according to Satterfield. The next day, one of our attendees sent us a message that said, Thank you for giving me the gift of a music festival that I was able to navigate on my terms in my timing, and it was the first time in my life I've been able to do something like this without the need of a sighted person, says Satterfield. That made everything worth it. This year, the Shine Music Festival returns for its third iteration at RealWorks Denver, no longer burdened by plague or smog. And much of Satterfield's focus, aside from organizing a wide variety of performers and vendors, 
is to make it known that the festival is for everyone, not just the disabled patrons whose needs are accounted for. We are a music festival that removes barriers to allow everyone the opportunity to experience the day on their own terms, explains Satterfield. If they want to sit in an area that is open and off to the side, we have sensory areas. We have neurodiverse areas. We have neurodiverse backpacks. We do all those things, but it's just a music festival. More than just a music festival, however, Shine endeavors to engage the disabled with live music in an immersive way, going above and beyond the minimal ADA requirements that often sequester people rather than include them. Satterfield cites her experience at a Snoop Dogg concert as the moment she realized that the live music scene needed to change. As she mixed and mingled with her friends and other concert goers, she noticed that the disabled were sectioned off in an ADA-compliant wing. Satterfield, being an empathetic social butterfly and a strong proponent of the live music experience, she saw 51 concerts that year, did not see why there should be a barrier between herself and other music fans. We were just all collectively sharing in the moment, and they weren't because they couldn't, she says. I can't go in there and meet them. They can't come out and meet me. And that's the magic of live music. The current minimalistic ADA laws just prevent them from being part of that. After removing the blinders, as she puts it, Satterfield set out to create a festival experience that could be inclusive and equitable for all. The first festival was held at Levitt Pavilion and saw performances from Neil Evans' Throwdown, one of the returning acts this year. In order to enhance the experience, technology is also implemented, ranging from full-body sound, which allows patrons to feel the music through muscle sim stimulation, to x-ray glasses, which provide real-time captions on the lenses. Features such as concert t-shirts and menus in Braille and neurodiverse backpacks aim to make the festival easily navigable for all. Alongside Evans, who was the drummer for Dopedpod, the throwdown will include Dan Africano, Thievery Corporation, Felix Pastorius, Harry Waters, and local jazz musicians in Manuel X. Alexander, Nick Gerlock, and Greg Harris. Other main stage acts include Sun Squabby, Walden, Tropical Waffle, and Jeffrey Marshall, who's an amputee himself, using his feet to play guitar while lying horizontally. Frick Frack Blackjack, a novel combination of the casino staple and bartering that made the cover of Westward last year, will allow attendees to place bets with anything but cash, with no limits. This year's festival will also be the first to include an after-hours portion, keeping the party going until 1 a.m. While admission to the festival is based on a pay-what-you-can scale, Satterfield notes that the intention of the pricing is to support the disabled, who are at risk of losing their ADA benefits if their pay rises above a certain threshold. She encourages able-bodied individuals to follow the recommended pricing in order to support Shine Music Festival's mission and growth. Because for Satterfield, the work doesn't stop with Shine. Normalizing the actual inclusion of the disabled is a message that she is promoting across Colorado explaining that by not exceeding the minimum ADA requirements, not only are venues losing out on a customer base, but owners and attendees are missing a chance for human exchange, 
which to Satterfield is a central part of the concert experience. If everybody around you looks like you, basically I think those rows as a rule of thumb, you're doing it wrong, she says. There's a lot of really awesome people out there, and if all you're doing is hanging out with your blinders on, you're going to miss out on a huge part of the rainbow. Shine Music Festival, Saturday, August 26th, noon to 1 a.m., RealWorks Denver, 1399 35th Street. Tickets are available on a pay-what-you-can basis. Denver Urban Gardens continues to grow its impact with food forests by Gina Parker. You can find them in almost every neighborhood, a pop of green among the city buildings where people gather to plant, weed, and chat inside fenced-off gardens. With close to 200 community and school-based gardens, Denver Urban Gardens, Doug, is the largest independent network of food-producing gardens in the country, and it continues to grow with its newest initiative, food forests. Urban gardens are critical parts of infrastructure for thriving cities, says CEO Linda Appel Lipsius, who has been working with the nonprofit for over three years. They are very cost-efficient, and the return on investment across food, soil health, climate, community, and access to healthy food is so simple, yet incredibly powerful and transformational. Doug has been around for over 45 years, and during that time, it has adapted its programs, garden styles, and workforce to keep up with the changing world. From volunteer-tended community gardens and plots to soil regeneration, cultivating connections with communities, educational programs, and much more, the team is redefining what it means to eat and thrive in a city. Last year, the organization launched its latest innovation in urban gardening, food forests, or areas where trees, bushes, and shrubs that all produce some kind of fruit or nut are planted. In addition to producing food, they also aid in pollination and create tree canopies. The fruits of this initiative don't stop there either. With more trees being planted across the city, air quality and biodiversity are supported too. Right now, I believe we are the only ones in Denver planting fruit trees, says Lipsius. Normally, everything in our gardens is very much rinse and repeat, a sort of annual planting. The food forests are legacy projects. They will start producing fruit in a few years and theoretically be around for 30 to 40 years after that. She continues, with community gardening, it's normally people gardening for their own family, but with food forests, they are true community orchards, open access. In its first year of the initiative, Doug planted six food forests with plans to add 20 more in 2023. Currently, it's looking for more public or private land for potential future sites. On September 23rd, the organization will host its signature fundraiser, the Gather Round Gala, at RealWorks. Guests will enjoy plant-based fare from the Easy Vegan, which recently won the Great Food Truck Race, as well as live music, dancing, a silent auction, and more. Tickets start at $150 and are available online. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.